This is Jane Smith reporting for WASP News. We report so you don't have to decide. Now, we're live outside of Sovereign Studios, where a protest has been taking place. Uh, sir, sir, what is going on here? We're going to put an end to his godless hedonism. He's corrupting the entire planet. Uh, you must be talking about the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. That's right. That sex fiend of an anarchist has crossed the line. We're going to rip his triple black clothing and then him to shreds. But Brian Sovereign believes in nonviolence. We don't care. He wants to end government and wants to pervert science and technology to do it. Brian Sovereign has to be stopped. This just in. Brian Sovereign is coming out of the studio. Tech time, baby. Let's get to it. But I'm not alone for episode 125. I have the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy here with me. Welcome. Hello, Brian. Yes. Or is it Jane Smith? <laughs> <laughs> well, as listeners know, I like to shake things up every six months. That uh, that equates to about every 25 episodes. And uh, yeah, we've got a new theme song, a new intro, whole new slew of stuff. I love these new bumpers. They were so fun to make. Yeah. You, you guys are going to love them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but speaking of new things or things that, uh, that are out now and available and ready to go for you to consume and take in, please... Hypercronius is available. My very first game from Zomia Offline Games. Uh, that is out there. You can go to zog.ninja, zog.ninja, or zomiaofflinegames.com. You take your pick. It goes to the same place, and you can grab a copy of that. And believe me, this is a good, short, solid RPG experience. Anybody can play it. Go for it. Uh, if I could play it, anybody can play it. And you could play <laughs> it. You enjoyed sure. it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I said before, I fell in love with the characters. They're just so freaking cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The reviews are, are still coming in and, you know, they're mostly positive. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's I, I love it. Well, if they were 100 percent positive, people would start to wonder if the reviewers yeah. are biased so there you go That's yeah good. i would think people are just being nice to me if they're 100 uh but they're not but they're mostly so anyway the other thing to check out is darkandroid.info i've been posting to that pretty regularly uh the whole zog.ninja website 
please check it out. There's so much to see there, so much to do. There's, of course, Sovereign Tech, which you're listening to now. There's, uh, you know, there's Dark Android. There's my regular Zog blog where I post various stuff. There's Hypercronius itself. I mean, there's so many things to do there now. Uh, and, you know, I've kind of made it a, a personal mission to release some form of content uh, per day, once per day. Yeah, you've been really active. You've, you're getting your money's worth out of that hosting package, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yay for Namecheap. Uh, they take Bitcoin. So, and so do I. If you want to buy Hypercronius or anything there, uh, or if you want to donate to the show, uh, Bitcoin is a total possibility. Please do yeah, so. Yeah, we worked together to set that up, didn't That's we? right. Boy, it was a pain in the butt. And actually, you can listen to the, the, the special we released this week where we talked about some of that. Uh, we did. Yeah, we, we did sort through. of behind the scenes of the making of Hypercronius. That was that was fun. Yeah. So really, Sovereign Tech listeners are getting a whole hell of a lot of you uh, this week. I mean, and well, I don't know. more my, where that came from. Well, I was going to say myself, I can't get enough. So <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. You, Brian. Yeah, I can only imagine how they feel. You're lucky and, for you, you don't have to get enough. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's get into the random access. It's episode 125. Uh, and, and, you know, now it's the road to 150. And then, hey, the road to 200 at some point here. You know, sometimes I think like um, if you're going to get really, really big as a podcaster or a YouTube person or whatever, mm -hmm. you really have to do it for like five to ten years. Like after about five, after I think about it's five, you know, after about one year, like okay, people maybe they realize that you have a podcast. After about two years, they're like, yeah, I might listen to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> about five years, maybe is when you start getting really big. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I think that might be the case. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, but most I, podcasts don't make it past that two-year point. Yeah, if, if even a year. Yeah, um, there seems it, to be a sticking point where they get sick of posting. I have experienced this, so I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, even like to have the consistency of it coming out every at least once a week, things yeah. like that. It's very oh, difficult it's for hard. people to do. But I know a few uh, podcasts where they hit that five-year mark, and then they're pretty much able to live off of the podcast, you know, and, and that's pretty great. Of course, they're putting out a ton of content by that point. Yeah, that's that's a uh, long internship. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That, that's, for your dream job. <laughs> right, that's for sure. So I'm certainly not planning on making a living. I mean, it'd be great to make a living off Sovereign Tech, but certainly not planning on it. Uh, but I'd love to make a living off of, uh, you know, game development. That'd be fantastic. Definitely. Yeah. So anyway... Um, Let's get into the random access. We got a lot to cover this week, a lot of stuff that listeners have been asking for, and it'll be very fortuitous that I have a biochemist with me. That, of course, being you, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two doctors in the house. One is real. The other is bought and paid for. <laughs> and I'm the real one. And you're the real one. <laughs> I just have a doctor of divinity. All right. Uh, no. <laughs> Relax, folks. I'm an atheist. And in fact, you know, maybe that's that's something interesting, you know, to hear this from an atheist is a uh, an interesting aspect uh, the first story in a random access which i thought was interesting and this really does have to do with technology of course it's ancient technology but stonehenge uh, a lot of people consider hmm. stonehenge in britain okay it's probably one of the most famous uh, landmarks or or uh, you know wonders on the planet earth of the ancient world isn't there like a stonehenge in new hampshire there is kind of a Stonehenge in New Hampshire, which we haven't checked out yet, but maybe we'll do a show from there. Oh, and, uh, oh that could be really that interesting. That would be an occult yeah. ritual. <laughs> oh, I'll make it one. <laughs> <laughs> I know the score. Uh, anyway, and so Stonehenge is, a lot of people consider it to be, you know, a, an astronomical uh, device or calendar of sorts, you know, however you want to, whatever you want to phrase that. But come to find out, you know, it's kind of mysterious because it's just like the only one, it seems. And a lot of people say, oh, well, it's used by the Druids and all this stuff. I mean, you can get all kinds wild conspiracy theories but one thing that we know is fact now is that it is actually one site of many 
in Britain itself. It's actually part of a what they're calling a super henge. Super henge. Right. Due to satellite photos. What kind of blasphemy is this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, due to satellite photos, the, there is actually a system, a network of stone henges all around Britain. And some of them are just underground. And they're recently. Yeah, it is. It really is interesting, uh, considering that also Britain is, I think, the site of the oldest roads we know of. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, and some people what about would. those roads in Greece? You know, the ones that go straight into the ocean? Oh, that gets weird. Yeah. Well, well, what's weird about those, not that they go into the ocean, because we know like in the Mediterranean, right, there's some odd 200 cities that have been yeah, that have sunk. Yeah, sunken cities. You know, yeah. they're sunken cities. Um, but I but guess. But they appear to go into the ocean now. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, kind of some of the weirder parts is that there's uh, roads that have actual like cart marks, like 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 a cart was being pulled and it was digging into the mud and that that, that got solidified somehow. Uh, yeah, th- those are those are certainly, you know, oddities. Uh, that's. That's for sure. You know, but as far as with uh, with Stonehenge, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure what to make of all of it. Um, it's interesting that there's there's guys like uh, Alan Butler and uh, Christopher Knight that have done work on that area. They came up with uh, what they feel is an ancient metric system known as the megalithic yard, which actually for uh, if you're into colonial history or I'm sorry, American history, uh, if you're into American history, Thomas Jefferson actually recommended that we should go to, uh, you know, not using like the, the imperial system, but switch to something that would have been equated to the megalithic yard. So uh, so you have some pretty antiquated math at the end of the day that that's the bottom line in that area. And some of our oldest structures we know of are in the United Kingdom in general, Ireland and things like that. Uh, so it, it's uh, I just I thought it was fascinating to find out that, well, we don't exactly still know why all this was built, but it is certainly part of a much larger system. It's not a unique uh, event, you know, that being Stonehenge. So anyway, before people start saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Let's get into some actual tech news in the random access, <laughs> some modern tech news, shall we? And this is interesting because, so I actually wrote this number down that I'm about to share with people because I wanted to talk about that alone, but then something even bigger occurred uh, this week. And the number is, is that 2.1 million people in the United States still connect to America online with a 56 K modem. No way. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was bad because I'm still on this three megabit per second connection from Comcast because it's like the only thing I can get in this area without paying for TV as well. Yeah. And we don't don't want want. that. (laughs) (laughs) But wow, you're, this makes me feel a lot better about myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 2.1 million people. Uh, I was shocking. Some people said that these were actually like kind of a, a grandfather plan that they're not actually using it, but then other have come out and said, no, we actually use this. Uh, and that's interesting in and of itself. Now, I'll grant you, I keep in my, you know, in my my go pack, you know, uh, where I, you know, my laptop bag or whatever, I keep a USB 56K modem in at all times to be able to connect. You never know where you are in the world or you never know where you are, I guess, in the United States <laughs> to where this is still kind of commonplace. Uh, but the interesting thing to come out of this um, and I think, you know, I just want to make this clear, you know, 56K, like that that whole network of uh, phone lines and all that stuff. I mean, that's a pretty solid infrastructure uh, out there, even though it's it's pretty much, you know, nobody even thinks about well, it anymore. Yeah, I, I think it might be kind of going away now because people are just eschewing landlines. Right, 
Right. I mean, and, and in large part, a lot of what I want to do on the Internet, which is, of course, communicate with people, uh, 56K would in many ways do the job, you Indeed, know. Yeah. Uh, so, you can do IRC, chat. Yeah. Right. Right. And actually to serve those 2.1 million people, I am still maybe I can get it done this week. Uh, I will have the 16K versions of Sovereign Tech available for the bandwidth impaired, which those people certainly are. But here's the interesting thing is that America Online just got bought out this week by Verizon. Of all companies. Wow. Yeah, that's for, interesting. For, See, but Verizon does these moves. Like, they bought a bunch of landlines in New Hampshire right. a couple of years ago. Maybe, actually, maybe it was more like 10 years ago at this point. Um, but they seem to be catering to these little niches of technologically impaired people or people in remote areas. Exactly. Like, what I want to know is, like, what are the demographics of these people who are connecting to AOL? Is there anyone under 75 that does this? Because yeah. that's just a dying customer base. I see that someone needs to serve them, but... Uh, I mean, <laughs> is this really a good decision? Like, I, do you think there's some hidden agenda? Is that what you're saying? No, I don't know. With Verizon buying AOL, like, first off, those people that those 2.1 million people should be scared that they're going to lose their service because Verizon, yeah. like they bought out a lot of the fiber, a lot of the dark fiber around the country, around the, the, the colonies. And they they just like stopped development like what is dark fiber dark fiber is fiber optic cable laid out that's not being used by anybody anymore Uh. or never got used in the first place and just got laid out very commonplace in cities it's a great thing for hacktivists to take advantage of because they i mean there's the fastest speeds on the planet and they can just you know hook up uh, as long as nobody knows about it but anyway uh, so you know they that all that landline might turn into dark landline (laughs) yeah Uh, because verizon just doesn't have a problem with cutting off service to people uh so i don't know so there's not so much of a shock there verizon is also largely the only people supporting landline at the same time so maybe that's not something that's going to happen uh but they bought it for 4.4 billion dollars but it's important and that might seem like a lot of money but it's important to keep it in perspective that aol in 99 1999 was worth 222 billion dollars so with a billion with a b in 99 forget about inflation so yeah that's um you know, <laughs> Verizon got a deal, you know, in, in that regard. Uh, they, they definitely bought low, uh, but they're probably never going to sell. So, <laughs> you know, there's no selling high to be uh, to be done there. But, you know, as far as like what their plan is, supposedly AOL has really good algorithms uh, and all of this. And for what? For what? Yeah. To like somehow, you know, to see I, who the people are who are about to kick the bucket. Well, I mean, AOL owns TechCrunch. They yeah. own Huffington Post. Uh, they own some pretty major news sources. Mm-hmm. They're kind of hands off with them. Um, but they do own them. So, I mean, Verizon's getting some stuff out of this and maybe they want to use uh, the brand. I mean, certainly, you know, their their attitude of being big brother would fit in very well with the uh, pyramid and eye of AOL, uh, their symbol. No, <laughs> no, I'm not going there, folks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm still kind of confused. The best answer people could give is getting into those new sources and, you know, just getting those AOL algorithms that apparently work relatively well. I don't know. Uh, I actually just read just a few months ago, I got an AOL Sovereign Tech email address. Sovereign Tech at AOL.com. I haven't looked at it since I set it up, but I figured, what the hell? You didn't even tell me about that. Yeah. I'm going to send I mentioned you some it on spam. The show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we can move on from that. I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, do you have any theories, Stephanie, that you want to share or? 
Um, I, I just don't know, like, what kind of algorithms Verizon could possibly want that they don't already have. I mean, aren't they the biggest data collector from the cell phone service? You know, like they are. Yeah. What could they possibly want with AOL? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I, unless they're just kind of going for the whole like world domination thing. And they're yeah. like, oh, there's a little niche we can exploit. <laughs> you know, you, it just hit me. I think maybe what's going on here when you said that Ooh. and that. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're so inspirational. I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that maybe this is their chance to for Verizon to start doing an ecosystem because Google is creeping up. You have Project Fi going on. You have Google Fiber. So Google has every, Google pretty much now since the release of Project Fi, which is their MVNO, their cellular service, can do everything Verizon can do um, without Verizon because they're using Sprint's and T-Mobile's lines for Project Fi. So I wonder if this is Verizon trying to create a new infrastructure or trying to create a, a whole ecosystem, much like I've theorized Facebook, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, uh, and, uh, uh, whoever else Amazon of course is doing. Yeah. So this is, this is their buy into an ecosystem, uh, an ecosystem being where, you know, you're into this like closed garden. We're going to talk about these more in a little bit where you're into this closed garden of, okay, nope, you get your music from Google. You do your social networking with Google. You do your email with Google. You do everything with Google. Yahoo's tried to do the same thing. All these companies are trying to do the same thing. And here's Verizon's chance. Um, and so, yeah. Maybe, Too bad no one's trying to do that. Who's not like evil. Who's not an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's go made safe. Uh, not, and they're not evil and they're doing something kind of different, but moving on, uh, let's get into speaking of, you know, this is something that really blew my mind recently. There was a re-release of the raspberry Pi, which is a computer, a little computer, $35 computer that I'm a huge fan of. In fact, they did a re-release that has like a quad core. Now it's a very viable machine these days. They dropped the older version down in price to $25, but a company or a group of guys or tech people, you know, they, they started a Kickstarter for a $9 computer called chip. And this has a one gigahertz processor, 512 megs of Ram, four gig of storage, and it has built in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, which actually, I think it bests the original Raspberry Pi, uh, in having that, but $9 computers. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and it's just, it looks just like a board, the thing that they showed. And of course the final design may look, may look, end up looking different. Um, but I mean, that, yeah, that, that blows my mind. I mean, when you consider what people do with raspberry Pis, uh, you know, what you could do with a $9 machine, uh, is, is really mind boggling. Now, yeah. of course that doesn't come with its own screen and all that. So in the end of the day, you have to have a screen to hook up that too. So maybe your, maybe your computer is still going to cost you a hundred, two hundred dollars. Um, well, I don't know if you could get an old monitor donated from somewhere or yeah, maybe. something like that. Or if you could just hook a bunch of them up to in sequence, you know. Sure. You know, like people used to do that with these Bitcoin mining rigs that were USB powered. They just they'd have like a one of those power strips that you could plug like eight USB things into like a hub. Right. And then they plug the hub into their machine and then they'd run them all from one. Right. Like maybe you could do that with these computers. Well, this is what I'd actually like. This is kind of my own desire, my own little fantasy of what I'd love to see done with these chip computers, uh, you know, for $9 a pop is to create alternative um, entire internets, you know, to, to create, you know, alternative networks, um, that are, you know, blanketing a certain area and everything like each of these little chip computers could all store and forward all of the data within a within a small area. And it could be done really inexpensively uh, and they really wouldn't have to be connected to much of anything. 
Um, I, I think that would be fantastic to just like lay these things out, have them all running an operating system that could, uh, you know, that, that, that allows for uh, Wi-Fi, like Wi-Fi hotspotting and all that stuff. And I mean, you could have your own little personal network within a community, within a little area uh, that, that would be very, very resilient, very versatile. Uh, I think that'd be awesome, you know, and it wouldn't require, you know, it'd be resilient because it wouldn't just be on one server. It'd be on like 20, 30, 40, 50 of these $9 chip computers. Uh, so I think that's an exciting uh, prospect that people could take advantage of. Could one of those even serve the functions that we think a server of a server is serving or it would it be more like a decentralized server on its own? Not, but if it was working with a bunch of others, absolutely. Mm. You know, it, it, it kind of, you know, I might be oversimplifying, but it'd be like the hardware version. Well, made safe is kind of a hardware version, but it'd sort of be like the hardware solution. Uh, it, it'd be like a BBS on steroids. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to, you know, how I would describe that in a very simple sense, but one of them alone, I wouldn't have be a server, but a bunch of them, yeah, I would love to have a good resilient network like that. Mm. So anyway, that's exciting just to have $9 machines out there. At some point, I want to talk about the issue that uh, like the fact that computers are cheaper does not necessarily mean that we're in this like dreamland. Uh, that's not necessarily true. I know some people would like to say, yay, capitalism, computers are only 200 bucks. It's like, well, you're getting a piece of shit for $200 that really shouldn't even be sold. Um, but <laughs> but that's another. What about the kids in Africa? Oh, yeah. well, well, they can't plug it in, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where power are they going to charge gonna it? Yeah. Um, but that's that's a whole other subject that we can uh, that we can get into in a future episode. So uh, one last bit that I want to talk about, speaking of Google, a little Google News, Google Chrome is now on Windows. It's going to be starting if it hasn't already, and very soon it'll be, uh, this will be true for Mac, I think in July. And that is, they will no longer be allowing extensions in Chrome that are not in the, the Chrome web store. So like, I don't think dark wallet. Wow. Yeah. I, so you can't like put it in developer mode and put your own extension on. I, you might be able to put it in developer mode that hasn't been made clear. Uh, yeah, but you're losing... what are the developers themselves going to do? Well, the thing is, is once you put it in developer mode, Chrome's, Chrome's, you know, only saving grace, which is the security, goes away. You know, like developer mode is a bad idea for the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, so now for Linux, they're not going to do this. So that, I guess, score one for Linux in that regard. Um, but maybe that's because they know people develop generally using Linux. Uh, but I thought that was just interesting that, I mean, like things like dark wallet and some of this other stuff, sorry, if, if Google says it's a no go, it's not happening. I'd wow. run away from developing for Chrome. Man, that yeah. sucks. Cause the, you know, it's the openness of that ecosystem has been good because all kinds of apps come out for it. Yeah. I but mean, this it, is just going to have a chilling effect. It sounds like. Right. I mean, the other great thing about Chrome was that it, uh, you know, it has so many apps, like so many great apps, like yeah. even like the BitPay. I mean, especially in the Bitcoin space, there's lots of awesome wallets that work only in Chrome. Yeah. Uh, CryptoKit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, there's uh, even one for Counterparty. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of great stuff for that. Uh, but I mean, if if Google is essentially going to, you know, hold the switch on all this, uh, that's, yeah. The, again, the battle for, you know, data, data con- for control of your own data and of what you want to do you know, in the digital space is being fought at the client. It's not even at the servers. It's not, you know, it's not really uh, out there in the ethereal internet. It's being done right on your own computer, mm-hmm. on your web browser. I think that's a fact. So 
I, I think that's a little bit of scary news for Google Chrome. And, you know, I'm not saying fire. We talked fi- last week about Firefox. Firefox isn't doing much better these days as far as, uh, you know, them putting the squeeze on their own little ecosystem. But, uh, yeah, start looking into some alternatives. So anyway, uh, let's get into, you know, speaking of closed gardens and closing things down, I want to get into our lead story, Stephanie. And we've got a hell of a tech roulette coming up. Uh, so stay tuned for that, everybody. Um, but this is from VentureBeat, and this is actually from uh, Dylan Tweeney, who I used to listen to his show back when he had uh, Tweeney. Tweeney, I know. <laughs> he he had a show called What to Think, a podcast, and he used to have Jolie Odell. Take it from me, yeah, Dylan Tweeney. <laughs> Dylan what Tweeney. to think? Yeah, so sorry, I don't even know the guy, and I'm making fun of his name. No, I, that's I'm, okay. I'm sorry, Dylan, <laughs> if you're listening. No, he's a full-on liberal. He's Anyway, uh, okay. uh, yeah, so he loves him some government. Okay. Um, but he, he used to do a show or he, and maybe it's still going. I stopped listening once they lost Julie Odell, but venture beat had a podcast called what to think. And it had some interesting stuff on there. Um, but then it started getting kind of political, probably due to Dylan Tweeney. Um, but he did an interesting write up this week and it's an opinion piece on venture beat. And he's kind of like the editor in chief there. So he can do that sort of thing. Um, and it's welcome to our beautifully designed corporate controlled future internet. So I'm going to read on here. Uh, there's a general. What's that? Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. There's a general shift in technology happening right now from the open web to native apps, from desktops to mobile phones, from platforms built on standards to platforms owned by corporations. Let's call it the second Internet. Here's what it looks like. That's right. It's Facebook. More than 1.44 billion people use Facebook every month, and almost a billion of them use it every day. The majority do so via the Facebook app on their phones. Think about that. A decade ago, the majority of people using the Internet were doing so on desktop computers or laptops, accessing HTML and JavaScript websites. Today, a vast number, maybe not a majority, but a lot, experience the Internet primarily through Facebook's mobile app. That's why publishers like The New York Times, BuzzFeed and National Geographic were so eager to test out Facebook's new instant articles platform. Now, I just want to well, I'll read on. It talks about it. This platform puts publishers stories directly into the Facebook app. Uh, It's on iOS only for now, where the load more where they load more quickly than they would if Facebook just linked to the publisher's websites, which take an average of eight seconds to load. Facebook says and instant articles offer a variety of snazzy tools for publishers to present their images and interactive uh, elements. Facebook's efforts to become a publishing platform are not unique. Instead of publishing posts on their own blogs, many of the best writers in tech journalism are now publishing on Medium, a site completely owned and controlled by one company. Why? Because the experience of writing and reading is so much better on Medium. It's not just consumers who are shifting towards platforms that are more engaging, easier to use and yet more controlled in corporations. Slack is taking off like an F 18 engaging its afterburners. VentureBeat is testing it out. And oh, it's man, easy for me. I hate Slack. Really? We use that for Let's Talk Bitcoin. I can't <laughs> fucking figure it out. I can't even log in. Like people mention my name at the, it, in the water cooler channel on Slack. It's like, oh, Stephanie did this. It's, oh, I, that was a great point by Stephanie. <laughs> and I can't even re- log in to reply. Yeah. I think I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's read down a bit about Slack. Uh-huh. I'll say I've used Slack for what it is, it's better than most implementations I've seen for what it is. Um, but but I'll read on here. And But your opinion, totally valid. <laughs> uh, 
So let's see. Uh, VentureBeat is testing Slack out, and it's easy for me to see why people view it as the long-awaited email killer. Slack is fast, fun, and works almost exactly the same way on a variety of devices. It can, If it can kill email, that's a good thing because most people hate email. There's too much of it. It's inefficient, and it's no fun. But we lose something when we move from the open web to Facebook or from email to Slack. What we lose is the ability to build tools that interoperate with our new platforms without first having to ask permission. That's not how the Internet was built. It was designed by groups of people discussing and gradually coming to consensus on what standards should govern various technologies. I'll grant you, standards are boring. They emerge only out of endless, dull committee meetings. They are difficult to understand without specialized knowledge, and they can be a pain in the ass to implement. But the upside is that you don't have to ask permission to build an email client or a web browser. You just study the relevant standards, build the best tool you can, and put it out there. If it works well and it is sufficiently compatible with standards that other people are using, it has a chance of becoming widely adopted. Now, there's just one more segment that I want to get to. There's a lot to say about mm, this. This is really good. Yeah. yeah. Where did the internet fail us? It's clear, though, that the standards-driven internet, for all its interoperability, is leaving people wanting. It's not clear why. Facebook is clearly more attractive than the open web to many people. Instant articles will only accelerate the trend, keeping more Facebook users inside the Facebook app. Slack is far better than any email client, and believe me, people have tried to make email clients fast and fun. And mobile apps, based on device-specific native code, continue to outstrip the growth of universally accessible mobile websites. The hypothesis I am reluctantly proposing here is that maybe the standards-based internet can't deliver a great user experience. Maybe you have to go beyond the internet standards to really delight your customers. Maybe you have to take control of the platform. I'm not about to make a simplistic distinction between open and closed systems because the truth is a lot more complicated. Facebook and Slack are both highly extensible platforms and they're open in many ways. Facebook in particular has made every effort to publish APIs and embrace developers, giving programmers the tools to build on top of Facebook with minimal interference or oversight. Slack is easy to extend with integrations that plug into a variety of other tools, and it's easy to see it becoming even more extensible in time. But at the end of the day, these companies own their platforms and can dictate the terms. Perhaps that is exactly why the customer experience is better there. But if they're open and welcoming to developers today, these platform owners could easily change their tune tomorrow. That's why nearly every story about Facebook's instant stories includes some kind of comment from the publishers or from the reporter covering it about the risks these publishers face we're going with it in with our eyes open, the New York Times CEO told Recode somewhat defensively. It's an issue for consumers as well as publishers. When Facebook is publishing is a publishing platform and your sole source of news, how comfortable do you feel that the news is free and independent? And for other corporations... Yeah, funny coming from the New York Times, but true. Yeah, exactly. And for other corporations, when you've traded free open email standards for the nicely designed confines of Slack, you will you regret it in 12 months or five years when your company owes enormous monthly fees to Slack and there's no viable alternative? Or will it simply not matter because the user experience is so awesome and so that's the that's the end of the article um mm. i think there's really a lot to talk about here so stephanie first things first that i want to really bring up is that you know with facebook in particular this instant articles or this instant paper instant publishing okay um yeah this is them saying no if you are recode or TechCrunch or whatever you're going to post right inside of 
Facebook. You're not going to do it on your website or your website will be an afterthought. Now, something that I actually applauded Facebook for recently was, and Twitter does this now too, and they still do it, where the app on the phone had a built-in web browser. So you didn't have to go to another web browser. Now, that's one way to solve that eight-second uh, you know, web page load. Okay, is to have your own, uh, you know, kind of pre-cached uh, web browser built into the app. And did you notice that they kept taking it away? Like they put it back in, then they, they take did. it away. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah, it would it'd be back and forth, and that's probably because of this instant publishing thing. Hmm. Um, I think that that's that's a huge part of that. Uh, but you know, overall, I want to know. I mean, what do you think about this, Stephanie? The idea of having these, well, you know, we won't say closed gardens, but of these like centralized areas within which to put all or where you get all your news. Yeah. I mean, there's a voice in my head saying, well, all the libertarians are going to be saying, well, what's wrong with this? This is just the market speaking. Oh, no shit. It's just people <laughs> people <laughs> expressing their preference if they like centralized systems. And yeah, maybe some people do, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of struggling to find exactly what's wrong with it. Probably that these companies are just so big and they got there by a lot of largely government political largesse right. they treat their users really shittily you're the product right and you know people know that but they can't break away <laughs> yeah well you know, you know i don't know i don't understand you know sort of what's going on there right unless and, people just don't care yeah i think the first thing to come up is the fact that facebook of course did the behavioral testing on you know uh, three quarters of a million people you know yeah. 750 million or however many that was uh, 750,000 people whatever it ended up being um, and if they are the hub of news, what happens if you're part of a behavioral experiment experiment that day? You know, like what's going to go on with that? I feel like my Facebook feed is always a behavioral experiment. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's got drama. It's got intrigue. It's got suspense. It's got it all. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think one of the important things to consider is that, you know, the appeal to efficiency in some ways, efficiency in an engineering aspect, which in my opinion is different from a de developer's aspect, uh, from an engineering aspect, I think efficiency can be a good thing. If your car gets better gas mileage, that's great, right? But efficiency, when it comes to communication systems, when it comes to systems that we rely upon to be more resilient, uh, you know, to where they can handle attacks uh, and things like that, which is the big push for people wanting distributed, federated, uh, you know, decentralized uh, systems, whichever word you want to use. And each one of those kind of has a little bit of a different uh, meaning. Okay. You know, efficiency is the cost. Like that, that is you, you don't get efficiency when you do that, but that's the point is that things cannot affect other aspects of your network quickly because of that lack of efficiency. So it's a plus, not a minus, but the average person doesn't understand that. All they want is they want their Facebook story and they want their connection and they want it now. And so I feel the real issue is that people just don't want to know. People just want to coast through life without considering what they're really doing without even, I mean, they don't even want to think about themselves, oh, let yeah. alone what they're doing. I think the, I think the whole popularity of Slack could be the name and the branding <laughs> like it's if you notice oh that appeals to us somebody in <laughs> somebody thought about that really carefully what their branding was going to be yeah and slack they're not branding it as like a productivity tool even if that's what it ostensibly is it's like right. oh yeah have fun slack off at work right <laughs> talk to your coworkers. slack off yeah so yeah i mean i wonder if if you're really onto something there 
<laughs> well, th- yeah, I th- and you know, this is the thing. I'm looking for an email killer, too, speaking of Slack. I mm-hmm. really am. But Slack's not it. Slack's, no. the, the, you know, the, the email killer I'm looking for is the system that's still federated like email is. Federated meaning, you know, that it doesn't have like a central hub. Okay. Yeah. Um, which the word people would think it means the opposite. But anyway, but I'm looking for the email, you know, the encrypted messaging solution. You know, that's the email killer for me. Not that it necessarily works much different than email, but that from its very, you know, from the very heart of it, it's designed for privacy and security, you know, dApps, decentralization, privacy, yeah. anonymity. And you know, security. it just values. Most people don't care. No, that's why they, PGP email never caught on. Right. Well, well it, it did. PGP is a pain in the ass like that. That's a fact. But that's it, the thing It is. But if you really value your privacy, you yeah, know, you'll go and, through with it. Yeah. You'll deal with it. It's a technology that's been around. It stood the test of time. It's been around for 20 years. Right. You know, or more, more than that. Um, and now with all the Snowden revelations, you'd think this is the perfect opportunity to take advantage of that. But you're right. It's hard and people don't want hard. They no, want that's easy. A, they that's, want slack. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, that, maybe that's the real answer to all of this is that what is it all about? It's all about the fact that people are lazy, glazed eyed fucks. <laughs> okay. oh no i mean don't don't be too hard on people because some you know sometimes w- lazy is a value judgment right it's uh, you could just as well say that um a caveman who's being lazy by inventing a device that lets him fish without sitting there and monitoring it and it just alerts them that when there's a fish you could say he's being lazy or you could say he's being oh. uh efficient and uh, inventive yeah. you certainly know? there's the argument that laziness has been the uh, has been the actual upward you know most people would say greed but actually yeah. laziness has been the upward climb of humanity and for it so Im- long. implies that you know hard work is is a virtue in and of itself yeah. which is an idea that i really think needs to be yeah. questioned so so late so I shouldn't say hard work, and that's where the word lazy becomes a problem. What I meant more is lazy-brained, as to where because I don't actually lazy. Yeah, because I don't think you can say stupidity. Like hard work is should not be considered necessarily a virtue, mm-hmm. but stupidity is not a virtue. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, having knowledge that's a virtue. Like that's a fact. So and that, that's, ignorance. Yeah, is not ignorance. A virtue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know that that's I think what a lot of this comes down to is people don't want to know. They don't want to deal with it. But the problem is, if you don't want to know, if you don't want to be educated about what you're doing, there are consequences that come along with that. You know, and the consequences are you lose control, which is what, uh, you know, Tweeny here is trying to kind of trying to lay out that that's what happens. But oh, as long as we have a great user experience and all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't say this, but this is exactly what's happening to Bitcoin and is going to happen to Bitcoin as time goes on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, crazy. <laughs> people don't give a shit about their private keys, Bit38 encrypted, multi-sig yeah. wallet, you know, like they're like, oh, give me something grandma can use. Give me a let me let me go on Coinbase. It doesn't matter that they monitor the blockchain to accuse me of random transactions that right. I may or may not have done. Yeah, uh, I just want a great user experience. Oh, it's so damn convenient. Yeah. See, that's my thing with Bitcoin all the time now is that no one really care. You, you know, nobody gets what Bitcoin was about and what it was supposed to do. And, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, if people just want a great user experience, just use fucking PayPal. You don't need Bitcoin for that. Indeed. Keep your credit cards and Facebook. We'll be back with more. It is the year 91001 BCE. Witness humanity's origins in Hypercronius, a classic role-playing game for Windows PCs with a story 
like no other game before. The liberty-oriented experience that is not to be missed. Go to zog.ninja to get your copy of Hypercronius today. Use the code SVT to get $1 off. Hypercronius. zog.ninja. Code SVT. Thank you for the exclusive, Mr. Sovereign. Please, Jane. It'll be our pleasure. Tea? Oh, thank you. I must say, for an anarchist, you're not what I expected. I'll assume that's a compliment. It is. Uh, is it true what they say about you? That you're a godless hedonist, bent on ending governments and conservative values? All true. But, but... What about supporting the troops? Marriage, white picket fences, and apple pie? (laughs) Come on, Jane. I love pie. As far as everything else, it's all just here to keep you from being happy. Wouldn't you rather be traveling the world, fucking every day, not worrying about what other people think? Uh, Oh, my, Mr. Sovereign. Come to think of it, I never felt like I fit into the system very well. I always wondered what it's like to be with an anarchist. Well, here's your chance to roll the roulette wheel and find out. Tech Roulette. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that fabulous? Oh my god, it's so fucking funny. You know that line with the apple pie and support the troops? That was so hard to say with a straight face. I don't think I did it, actually. (laughs) You can kind of hear me breaking up. It's just so funny. Oh, I love it. Anyway, yeah. So oh. uh, <laughs> just in case it's the first time anyone's listening, uh, I do uh, intro beds, you know, bumpers, as they're called, for each segment. And for the past 50 some odd episodes, they've all been a story. And every 25, I change the story. And so this is the new this is the next chapter of the story. And all this interconnects into, well, only the future will tell. But uh, anyway, <laughs> even you don't know where yeah. it's going. next. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to listen to like episode 102. There is a special one between 101 and 102. So you got to You got to listen to in between the episodes, like listen to episode 80, then listen to episode 100, uh, then listen to 103 and then listen to, you know, this one. And then you'll, you'll kind of get the whole story. Uh, but anyway, speaking of a story, in fact, this is one people said, I, I got a telegram uh, with the telegram app. And the person said, Hey, Please talk about this. And so here I am. Tech Roulette is the place where people can send me stories and I will talk about them on the show. And fortunately, of course, I have the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy with me, who is a biochemist, to talk about this very subject because it's a, admittedly, it's a serious one. And that is, uh, this is from Technology Review, of course, MIT. Uh, Chinese team reports gene editing human embryos. A research team finds that gene editing isn't yet reliable enough to engineer the human species. Mm. Yeah. How many, uh, how many embryos did they experiment with? (laughs) Yeah, to figure that out. Well, why don't we read a little bit and then we can talk about it. Um, In an ethically charged first, Chinese researchers have used gene editing to modify human embryos obtained from an in vitro fertilization clinic. The 16-person scientific team based at the Sun Yat-sen University in Gangshu, China, set out to see whether it could correct the gene defect that causes beta thalassemia? 
beta thalassemia. So this is a this is kind of like sickle cell anemia, where something with the the hemoglobin is messed up, and um, at certain times it can make it so that your red blood cells will burst. And it actually, um, you know, the gene is actually that. This is an interesting example because that gene is there for a reason. It's found in like. Greek people or people mm-hmm. of like, uh, you know, African descent. Um, the, the sickle cell variant is found in African descent, but right. beta thalassemia is more like Mediterranean people. And the reason is because they were subjected to evolutionary pressures where malaria was very prevalent and carrying these genes, not having the full-blown disease with two bad copies of the gene, mm-hmm. but just having one good copy and one bad copy actually protected you against malaria. So ah. it became very common in that population to have that because the people who had one bad copy survived uh, from malaria. So um, now they're trying to now they're saying to we don't need to that. worry about that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so they did. This. I wish we didn't have to worry about malaria. It's right. kind of still around. I mean, it hasn't been eradicated yet. Yeah. So they did this by uh, editing the DNA of fertilized eggs. I'll read a little bit more. The team's report showed the method is not yet very accurate, confirming scientific doubts around whether gene editing could be practical in human embryos and whether genetically engineered people are going to be born anytime soon. The author's report appeared on April 18th, 2015 in a low profile scientific journal called Protein and Cell. The authors led by uh, Junju Huang say there is a quote unquote pressing need to improve the accuracy of gene editing before it can be applied clinically, for instance, to produce children with repaired genes. The researchers did not try to establish a pregnancy uh, and say that for ethical reasons, they did their tests only in embryos that were abnormal. Yeah. Okay. So that, you know, that makes it better that they didn't try to establish a pregnancy. Um, Right. And they weren't messing with healthy babies, apparently. Not to say what is healthy, but. And, you know, look, like there was this big controversy uh, 15 years ago about stem cell research, right? And everybody, all the Christians were freaking out because they're like, oh my God, they're killing babies. They're going to use them for research. No, that's absolutely not what happened. Um, What people were doing at the time was trying to make human embryonic stem cells to be used in research or, you know, for treatments for diseases after they did the research to figure out if they could use them for treatments. And most of these embryo, like when women get in vitro fertilization, when couples get that, um, they create way more embryos than will actually ever become babies. Like they might create 20 embryos and one of them, maybe, maybe one of them will implant into the uterus and ever become a viable pregnancy or baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they, they always create more because it's like, you know, if they're going to do the fertilization, um, they might as well do it, you know, in one shot. It's kind of a complicated procedure. They don't want to have to do it again, even if they have to try um, injecting them into the woman's uterus a couple times to get the pregnancy to take. They do the fertilization a bunch of times or or just once. And right. they might do the implantation a couple times if it doesn't take. But anyway, so there, there basically are extra embryos created. And most of them, sit in the freezer and nothing ever happens to them. They were never going to come become human beings. Um, I, can, I guess I can sort of see, um, you know, some people just don't like the idea of, well, you're treating this human tissue that 
could, you know, theoretically have the potential to become a full adult human really callously, right? You're treating Mm -hmm. it as some tissue to be experimented on. But you know what? I mean, most medical research is done on human tissues, maybe from adult humans, from their tumors, from cancer cells. There's the famous case of the HeLa cells, which are were taken against this woman's oh, is that consent. the black woman yes, from, yes. H- Henrietta Lacks. Right. Yeah. yeah, she had cervical cancer and she had this monster tumor and she ended up dying from it. But the doctors like basically took pieces of her tumor, cultured them in the lab, and now it's the most commonly used cell line. And her family is like, Her family freaked out about it because they were like, look, she never got compensated. Her family never got compensated for this. It's the most commonly used human cell line in medical research. We didn't get a dime. And meanwhile, there's all these people using my aunt or my mother or my grandmother's tissue. And we feel like she can never fully die because her cells are living on in all these laboratories. Yeah. So this this becomes, I mean, I think you're raising an overall great point is that this stuff is very emotionally charged. And yeah, a lot but of it's people not, aren't. It's not really a big deal once you, I, I don't think it's a big sure. deal. Well, it know. becomes the question of what is life? Like, is this human tissue, you know, why there's never really been an uproar or it's been very rare that there was an uproar, uh, maybe in like the 19th, 18th century, there might have been some degree of an uproar, uproar of working on cadavers, you know, on, mm-hmm. on working on, on, on dead bodies, okay, and doing experiments on them. No one ever really thinks twice about that unless, you know, again, you're some kind of religious sect. Um, but, you know, if you go messing with something that hasn't even been born yet, by pretty much anybody's definition, of course, that's where things get funny. Um, why is that different? you know, to do that kind of experimentation there. Okay. Well, it's not just that it hasn't been born yet. It's that it will never be born. It'll never be born. There yeah. you go. It never has any chance to be born. Right. So, and I want to highlight real quick. And actually, what, what, before you go yeah, into yeah. that, I just want to let people know, I, it, it probably sounds like maybe I'm making an argument from, well, this is the way things are, so therefore it's right. I'm not trying to say that, but I think it, it helps to have some context here of just the number of pregnancies that spontaneously abort, you know, without anyone trying to cause an abortion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a huge percentage of, of fertilized eggs, you know, where man and woman well, we're getting into the birds and the bees here. But I think if you're listening to this show, you know how it works. Uh, yeah. But, you know, man and a woman love each other very much and they get, get get intimate and the sperm fertilizes the egg. And, you know, that from that point on, it it is almost a miracle that it becomes a full adult human because there's so many things can go wrong. Right. First of all, there can be a genetic clash where somebody has a mutation in some gene and somebody has the other parent has a mutation in another gene and when they come together the embryo is just not viable it can't it can't survive so it just dies on its own right okay and it never becomes a pregnancy then you can have uh where it doesn't implant in the mother's uterus for some reason because of whatever it's not a good environment it's not a hospitable environment for it to implant and you can have you know developmental problems where just something goes wrong there's you know there's the fetus doesn't develop correctly and it it aborts. Most of those abortions, natural abortions, happen before the woman even knows she's pregnant, before she misses a period. Right. Okay. And it's amazing how often that happens in nature and how, (laughs) I guess, how 
up-in-arms people get about things like stem cell research. Now, by the way, now nowadays, this whole thing about using human embryonic stem cells to do stem cell research is moot because oh, yeah. you can create stem cells from an adult cell. It's right. called induced pluripotent cells. You could take one of Brian Sovereign's skin fibroblasts, culture it in the lab, and turn it into uh, a Brian Sovereign stem cell. (laughs) And hopefully, you know, eventually those will be able to cure some disease. Oh, I thought you wanted to make a clone of me. Well, I wouldn't. Mm. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if we can do that yet. <laughs> I I would love to. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, now you got my mind going in all yeah. different directions. But well, you can make stem cells from adult cells, mm-hmm. and like if you think it's a big deal to be messing with human tissue, it happens all the time. And actually, there are some diseases now where you could potentially, if you needed a new bladder or a new esophagus, you could culture your own. Uh, cell, skin cells, turn it into an induced pluripotent cell, then differentiate that into a new bladder and 3D print it. And right. I mean, that stuff is becoming a reality. So, uh, yeah, well, I don't, yeah. I think most people would consider you your credential stand. You know, I mean, you are, you are a voice of reason. Okay. So I don't think anyone's going to, you know, and would, would think you're being heartless. But I think it's important to illustrate that neither were the Chinese. In this case, in my opinion, uh, I'm just yeah, going to read. Yeah, they didn't the... try to go for a pregnancy, right? And I'll just read the last bit here. Uh, Huang, who was the lead guy, said he stopped the research after the poor results. He said, "If you want to do it in normal embryos, you need to be close to a hundred percent." That's why we stopped. We still think it's too immature. Okay, so, so there they was have not some this... technique. Yeah, there's some technology, basically, to translate that. There's some technology that allows you to go into a cell and edit genes, but it won't work in a hundred percent of all the cells. Right. So what they were doing was trying to repair damaged genes in a in a early stage human embryo um but it wasn't able to be a hundred percent effective so some cells which a cell in an embryo ends up developing into a whole organ or a whole region a whole type of tissue of mm-hmm. a of an adult human so they they really weren't able to completely get rid of the bad genes right in that embryo so they they're like no this isn't ready for prime time basically right. yeah but that's that's the restraint that's being shown and kudos to them for that okay because i think a lot of people would be like oh they're finding a way the, the chinese the chai coms they're going to stop america they're going to well, you know somebody's going to do this you know well, the technology exists somebody's going to do it sure okay but like this isn't even the main thing to if one was worried about what the what you know what Ch- the chinese government was doing um this isn't even the first thing like we talked about. Actually, it was a show you were on. This was back in like episode 30 or something where we talked about how they were doing breeding programs in China, yep. state funded, which a lot of things are. What isn't state funded <laughs> yeah. in China? <laughs> uh, you know, they did breeding programs. That's far more concerning if you're you know worried about what, what China is going to do here. They're approaching it from all angles, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely going all the way. I, I Again, credit to the scientists saying, look, we're not going to go further with this. And I mean, some people say, well, that's what, just what they're telling the mainstream news is that they're not going for it. But really, oh, I'm sure they're doing... trying again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're <laughs> sure. going to wait for the technology to improve. Right. So, but I think the question that may Maybe a lot of people want to want to consider about this. And please, you know, America in their genetic programs, they've been doing it for over 100 years. Uh, so they've got, you know, well, there was eugenics here in the U.S. Exactly. Folks. Yes, Virginia. There w- there were black women that got sterilized without their consent or knowledge. Yeah. Even whites and Jews. I mean, go down yeah. the list, you know, certainly, uh, you know, they, there was no nobody was spared and no one would ever be spared for by 
programs being done by the American government. So, you know, what would you expect the Chinese government to do? Probably not a whole lot different. Sure, that's fine. But I think the question to come up with or that a lot of people wanted me to really talk about, in this case, us to talk about, and you're far more qualified than I, is, is this okay to do in and of itself? Should we be engaging in genetic engineering in and of itself? You know, like I, I'm reminded of a Star Trek quote, you know, that that Khan Noonien Singh said, who was a, you know, in that he was part of the eugenic wars and he was a genetically modified human. And he said, you know, improve technology and you increase man's ability by tenfold, but improve man and you increase his ability a thousandfold. And so, you know, that that gets into some funny Nietzschean areas, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, like, how do you feel about that? If someone said, look, Stephanie, your baby and of course, we're never having children, but. Well, yeah, that has to do with how I feel about it. I mean, that, sure. that definitely influences yeah, the fact how that I we feel. don't want to have kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I was going there, too, Brian, like the sure. concept of eugenics, which is this what that's what it brings up. Right. I mean. I have to admit, if I wanted to have children, which I don't, you know, I would want a healthy baby. I wouldn't want to create a human being that's going to suffer from some genetic disease, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but at the same time, any time you try to <laughs> – people are so arrogant. They think that they can beat nature you know, you see it in all kinds of areas with um, the biotechnology that's coming out these right. days. Drugs, you know, oh, isn't this great? We have a new drug to cure this. Well, the drug has 10 other side effects that you didn't anticipate. Well, you raised a great point that MIT here didn't even bring up, which is about malaria, right? Mm -hmm. How it was it evolved. It was it would seem like a failure. You know, that 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 people would be susceptible to, to sickle cell, right? Yeah. To anemia. But actually, it saved them from getting malaria and it allowed that civilization you know, those Mediterranean civilizations to move on, yep. to grow Absolutely. and to even get to this point. So, yeah, the idea of not beating nature. I mean, that that's the thing is that some things that we look at as flaws, like some people would see decentralized systems as flaws, uh, you know, no, we need to centralize just a little bit for efficiency sake may actually be far more harmful than we realize. And that goes for biology as well. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, I mean, I, I have to admit, it is hard to come up with an argument that says, well, you know, like um, Down syndrome, it we should create we, sh we should make sure there are some children who have Down syndrome because they they're going to be missing out on the experience. Like, I don't know what it would be. Well, actually. Okay, maybe I just proved myself wrong because there is something um, in Down syndrome where they they don't get uh, certain types of cancer. That there's a gene on the 21st chromosome that protects against cancer. Ah. So maybe once that's hacked, maybe once that can be used to actually treat cancer, um, you know, maybe it's hard to find a justification for anybody having Down syndrome in the future. But the fact that those people exist teaches us things about biology that we didn't know before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, the, the answer comes down to, as far as eugenics, is that, you know, if one wants to go with analogies, and again, you know, arguing from analogy isn't proof, okay, but if one wants to go with analogies, you know, consider the universe, you know, a gigantic experiment, okay, and to consider that, or, you know, consider it a computer, and consi to consider, for humans to think that somehow they could make a computer, that could calculate over the amount of time as in billions of years, if, if not the, the universe might even have been forever. Okay. Which I'm open to that. Uh, you know, that computer has been comp, you know, running computations all that time and it's coming up with what may, may for some seem to be failure 
is actually a degree of perfection. And to to think you could mess with that to mess with perfection, you know, I mean that that's that's some hubris and that's some real arrogance, which comes from ignorance. Yeah. Or to even think you know what perfection is and that your version of perfection is the right one. You know, there's obviously there's not. I mean, evolution is morally neutral. It doesn't it just selects for things based on the environmental pressures. It doesn't make value judgments about what's good or bad. It just it just ends up that way that certain traits get selected for or against. Yeah. Um, and maybe the environment changes and then certain traits are not so advantageous to have, right? Like, you know, the whole thrifty gene hypothesis, right? Like sure. we were starving. It was great to to be have a little extra fat. But now yeah, that, nowadays when there's McDonald's everywhere, you know, it's not so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that extra 10 pounds. But evolution doesn't care. It doesn't make those those value judgments. And so, you know, how can how can humans make those value judgments, you right. know? Um, and, and like I said, it's hard to come up with, when you see people suffering, it's hard to come up with a justification for that. But at the same time, is there any way to prevent uh, suffering from genetic diseases without losing um, what is so great about the random combination of people's genetics and sexual reproduction? Yeah. I don't know if there is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it raises the question of, you know, should we even take medicine in the first place? Look, there's, I think it's a very great thing to want to try and cure diseases. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, this is like preemptive stuff. And when you get preemptive, that's kind of where things start to get, that's where the water gets muddy, in my opinion, is when you're being preemptive, uh, you know, on a lot of things. Um, You can know what is beneficial to your health, you know, by the way you eat and how you react to it. But then you're only being preemptive after experimentation, uh, you know, with diet and things like that. Um, But like, okay, so you got cancer. All right, we need to find a cure for that. To keep it from ever happening in the first place at this level of, you know, editing genes that a full understanding isn't to isn't had. Yeah, that's a problem. I, I think that's where things get really, really sketchy. And that's not even getting into the area of what happens if you improve humanity, like not just with diseases, but like make better hearing, better eyesight, uh, you know, and, and things like that. Yeah, that's I mean, that that sounds like something that I bet scientists would think they can do. But then I guarantee you, once you actually try it, it's going to go wrong. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that what happens if you improve hearing? And then suddenly all of this, you know, all the technological world we live in, suddenly we can hear like dogs and we're hearing all kinds of yeah, shit. And it drives and, you crazy. Yeah, we can't even stand to live in our own cities or our own towns because everything's well, so goddamn loud. Well, a bad thing, but yeah, well, right, I know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the poor person who has to right. hear the dog whistles all the time. Right. But I mean, but there's no, I don't think, I don't know the group of people. There's so many things, especially for humans to get straight in their head right now, uh, I I don't know the group that I trust with doing any kind of enhancements upon the human condition. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, it's and also I don't want my vagina to smell like a peach. I want it to smell like a normal vagina. (laughs) I, you know, fuck him. Yeah, the Cambrian Cambrian genomics. genomics. He's like a super. He he's a he's a super villain on this show. (laughs) But uh, you know, I like the smell of pussy. Me too. You know, I really do. Screw this smelling like peaches bullshit. Maybe I don't like the smell of fucking peaches, asshole. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or bananas. <laughs> or bananas. Ridiculous. I mean, I love that scent. Uh, anyway, yeah. So the bottom line being, I think, is that we are not ready to even dream of messing with the genome at this level. But somebody's going to do it. But somebody's somebody, going to try anyway. Yeah, somebody's yeah. going to try. And you know what might happen in that end, though? 
much like all the great skyscrapers that get built all the time. And then suddenly a hurricane comes through and says, fuck you. You know, <laughs> I know you think that's really great what yeah. you just built there. It, it may be a very, very humbling experience for them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, you just you don't know. I mean, the the amount of computations you'd have to, in my opinion, you have the calculations you have to do to figure out to have it all worked out to where something would sit very well back or newly into an ecosystem. Uh, I don't know that anybody's got that going on. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like to genetically engineer your children, it seems like this absurd level of control. Like, talk about having children to have them carry out something that you wish you could do or living vicariously. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that's like the, whole the minute baby you thing. blow that load or the minute you ovulate that egg, you've lost control. You've yeah. created a new person and right. they're their own person. You they're are not a for steward, you. Nothing more. Yeah. It's not yours to choose yeah. at all. Yeah, great point, Stephanie. So, anyway, <laughs> we'll be right back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. Most condoms are made from latex. While it's unusual to have an allergy to latex, some people do, and it can cause redness, itching, hives, a rash, difficulty breathing, a scratchy throat, and even anaphylactic shock, which is not a desired outcome of having sex. Strangely enough, the allergy usually isn't to the latex itself, but to the impurities that are in natural latex, which is harvested from rubber trees. Because the allergy is to the impurities, condom manufacturers figured a way to make a totally pure form of latex that's never seen the inside of a rubber tree. This new material is used in low allergy condoms such as the Lifestyle Skin and the Avanti Bear. There are other condoms that don't use latex at all, like the Trojan Supra, which is made of polyurethane. Plenty of people who aren't allergic to latex prefer polyurethane condoms because they do a much better job of transferring body heat than latex does. If you are having condom-related discomfort, another thing to consider is that the irritation might be from the lubricant on the condom or from friction that results from having not enough lubrication. If you think you may have an allergy to latex, be sure to consult with a healthcare provider because it could get worse. Also, if you're allergic to latex, you've got a greater chance of being allergic to avocados, bananas, chestnuts, kiwis, and passion fruit. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. Oh, oh, that was... I'm speechless. Oh, if I'm leaving a reporter speechless, I must be doing things right. Natalia, what's going on? Agent Sovereign, read this. Then meet me at the Central HQ. I have to go. What was that? And why would someone give you something on paper these days? Because it's something that is too important to risk sending digitally. As for what the message says, it looks like I've been doing things wrong. Important Messages It is time for Important Messages. Woo boy. <laughs> a little cameo there from Natalia. Yeah, Natalia Busting jumped through in. through the window. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, anything, you know, there's something always interrupts a sex scene, you know. But it, well, not always. <laughs> it sounded like the sex scene had already occurred. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of over, but all right. So it didn't interrupt it. Anyway, um, you know, it's time for important messages where all the channels available to Sovereign Tech listeners, uh, you can get in touch with me, ask me a question. It can be about anything. It doesn't have to be even about science and tech. It can be whatever you want, and I will uh, answer it. 
But before I get into these, uh, we got a couple and hopefully we can get through them. Uh, Stephanie, you have, you know, I, I talked about my project Hypercronius, which is out and available for purchase with Bitcoin and whatever else. Um, you have... A, uh, a book that came out, Book of Satoshi. It's not your book. It's by Phil Champagne. Mm -hmm. and, but you did the audio book because you are the voice of Bitcoin, no doubt about it. Oh. And, uh, and, and tell people a little bit about that. Oh, thanks. And well, where they can get it. Okay. Well, you know, actually, sorry. There's a link in the show notes in the appendix where they can click and, and get to it. But okay. go ahead. Awesome. Well, I mean, so the Book of Satoshi is actually all of Satoshi Nakamoto's um, public writings that were posted on the internet. An important work. Um, yeah, and it's all collected in one place. And there's also commentary on it and an introduction about like what Bitcoin is and how it works. It's really like the early history of Bitcoin. So it's basically Satoshi Nakamoto is an anonymous um, a pseudonym of a person. Anonymous? Wait, 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 wait. You mean he or she did not get their blockchain ID? And reveal to the entire world. How is Satoshi going to get held accountable for uh, this? Is outrageous. I know. Only terrorists and money launderers and drug dealers don't want to have an ID. That's right. It? God damn it. <laughs> Sarcasm there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym of the person who created Bitcoin who wants to be anonymous. Shocker, shocker. And uh, can't they, picture why. They actually disappeared. They were posting for a while to kind of introduce Bitcoin, get the ball rolling, and then um, and then disappeared in like 2010. And then Bitcoin sort of took on a life of its own. Um, and it's really interesting to just see that process and how it evolves. Like you can really tell Satoshi's personality comes out through their writing. You can really tell um, that there are some like that Satoshi is almost like afraid or uncomfortable that Bitcoin's going to attract too much attention, mm -hmm. especially from the government. And of course, the last uh, no, <laughs> the last time anyone heard from Satoshi was this private email exchange with Gavin Andreessen, where Gavin just kind of. I, I, in a way that I didn't like, Gavin tries to kind of drop in like to in in an email thread about something else. Oh, uh, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to give a talk about Bitcoin to the CIA. Uh, this yeah. might be a really good idea or a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah, and he says... And yeah, Satoshi's I'm, like, I'm out. See ya. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Gavin, I, I bring up that email a lot because Gavin also said, well, I, you know, I want to get it away from the whole anarchist thing. It's like we need to, you know, we need to get away from that. And, and uh, mm. so, yeah. Keep telling me how Bitcoin's just so well. Anyway, let's let's not go there. But the book yeah, is great. It's an important read. The book is great. Read, um, and there's some to nuggets in there. Phenomenal. Yeah, thank you, thank you. There, yeah. There's some nuggets in there where Satoshi, like, or one of my favorite ones is Satoshi actually recommends like heating your home in an, in a cold with climate a Bitcoin miner. with a Bitcoin miner. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, "Well, you're paying for electric heat anyway." Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it was really cute. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and it's just amazing. Uh, aside from the whole ASIC thing, it's amazing how much foresight Satoshi had. Like all these discussions that are happening now, all the, they were, yeah, Satoshi they anticipated them. everything. Yeah. He had, or she had all the bases covered. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just a really cool book. You can download it for free on Audible if you want to get a trial membership to Audible. Um, I've also got a couple of review codes. So if you want, if you want to listen to the book for free and you would consider, you know, leaving an honest review, and when you leave reviews on Audible, it's not just the narration, it's the it's the book, like the uh, the writing of the book and the narration. You can kind of review them separately. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're interested in that, um, you know, you can just get in touch with Brian and he'll forward you yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me and yeah. I can hook you up with one of those. Um, but yeah, it's I really enjoyed making that book. Yeah. And I have another book coming out. It's not out yet. It's finished recording. It's it's still being 
uh, it, it's it needs to be approved basically by the authors. I'm waiting on that right now. And it's ending aging. Oh, this by is Aubrey de Grey and Michael Ray. Yeah, yeah talking about doing interesting work. Now, there's a genetic uh, situation. Yeah, that I'd be interested. The idea of because this whole book is about how do we stop people from like it's life extension. Yeah, and yeah. how do we stop people from dying basically? And yeah, um, that book I, I'll I'll save the review for when it actually comes out on audiobook. But um, I just wanted to mention it quick because we talked a lot about stem cells and there's a whole section on stem cells in that book. Right. So, and again, the best way to get in touch with this show is go. To to sovereigntech.ninja or zog.ninja take your pick and there's a there's a contact us tab and right there you don't have to give me your email address you don't have to or well i'll need it if you want if i'm going to send a code to you or something but otherwise you can get in touch with me right there you don't need an email address don't need anything and, and you can get in touch with me so but uh, i will need an email if you want the code <laughs> but anyway, great work, Stephanie. That that Thank stuff's you. phenomenal. So, I, it was hard work. It, yeah. it took a while to make those two books. I was kind of working on them concurrently. Yeah. But uh, there were some people on Twitter that said, "Oh my gosh, I would I would listen to Stephanie read the dictionary." So if you're <laughs> one of those people, grab the book Here's of your Satoshi chance. from Audible.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I will entertain you for six hours. Right. So let's get into you know I got a couple email emails here. There's someone uh, a really great listener who. Uh, uh, had some thoughts on the whole expat conversation that we've had in the past. Oh, but you know, mm. we may not have time to get into that. If not, I will get into it next week. I promise. Um, what I want to talk about is something that a lot of people have requested that I talk about, uh, because this is kind of a hot topic again, of course, election seasons coming up all over the place. And there are a lot of self-described anarchists. Maybe they want to use another term. Maybe they want to call themselves voluntarists, libertarians. Fuck, I don't know what they want to use. Okay. <laughs> but some of them do definitely use the word anarchist quite a bit. And they are running for office. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were saying that, I didn't know what you were going to say at the end of that sentence. Yeah. When you're saying it, I was like, well, yeah, like, I, I don't really care what people call themselves. Call yourself whatever the hell you want. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I do. It does kind of bother me when people call themselves anarchists and actually make a living, like put their branding on the fact that they're an anarchist right. and then run for political office. Jeff Berwick, I'm talking to you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I like Jeff Berwick, but, um, you know, I really disagree with this whole like anarchists running for political yeah. office thing. I just I think a lot of the arguments are for doing that are super fallacious. Like the argument is that, well, be careful when you say you like the guy, because I mean, like we're talking about somebody that pushes the flat earth theory, uh, among other things. Well, I do like him. Okay. And I, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I disagree with some of his ideas for sure, but you know, I'm not going to agree a hundred percent with everybody, but I like him personally. Um, but yeah, so this whole idea of running for office as an anarchist, the, the argument I guess is that it's like, it's it's to take advantage of the free advertising because people pay attention to elections and it's not really participating in the system because Mm -hmm. you're you're an anarchist and you don't you're not you're not going to get corrupted by the government just give me the ring just give me the ring yeah you know (laughs) and uh first of all i have a really hard time anybody uh who is who is willing to run for office isn't at some level doing it for the fame or the power or the attention that they're going to get. Mm -hmm. Um, Another point on that is like about the free advertising thing. Um, The, the idea is that people pay attention to elections and so you can influence all these people because they're listening. Well, one good luck getting media coverage as a 
non-Republican or Democrat, at least here in the U.S., third-party candidates really don't get much coverage. And two, who is the audience you're talking to? It's people who watch the news, people who follow politics, people who are deeply actually into the matrix, people who are in the system. You're not getting to talk to the people who are already outside the system. Maybe they don't call themselves an anarchist or libertarian or voluntarist, mm-hmm. but they are apolitical. They are they are not interested in um, watching the dog and pony show that is modern politics. So, and you don't get to talk to those people through a political campaign. And I think that is actually where the richest source of potential anarchists, libertarians, voluntarists, whatever, uh, is. Sure. I mean, I've met... <laughs> If we take, <laughs> okay, this is, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk about this, but let, suffice it to say, I've randomly and uh, through online and through mutual friends met lots of people who are basically libertarians and they didn't know it, but they are completely outside the political system. Right. They don't follow their Republicans and Democrats. They're sick yeah, they when just they don't see care. that stuff. Yeah. And they're not following third parties either because they're disaffected with the whole political system. So I just think the people who are going to be even paying attention to an election are maybe not the right people that you want to even talk to in the first place. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as far as, you know, my opinion to Jeff Berwick, uh, not a fan at all. Um, he he pr- promotes a lot of things that I consider particularly harmful. Um, yeah. The Flat Earth was like ridiculous. Yeah, flat I mean, Earth, it- <laughs> 9-11 Truth, uh, Lizard Jews. Uh, I mean, you know, the the list is well. You know, gravity was invented by a Freemason, right. and Brian, so, so, yeah, exactly. So, I, well, I mean, okay, so we're focusing on that. No, I don't mean to just focus on him. I'm just saying that, you know, this guy is wanting support from other anarchists for what he's doing. Yeah, he is I, not I the person I, I want representing that. what I think of as anarchy. There's a lot of people I don't want representing anarchy for me. Okay. I don't want but, anyone representing no, me, quite honestly. Well, right. I think that's the I'm point. I'm the only person who can represent me. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that I don't think any anarchists want representatives, but yet these people are saying that they want to be representatives. So there's a whole slew of issues with this, okay? And it's not just Berwick. Um, and, and speaking of somebody I like, I like Daryl W. Perry a whole hell of a lot. He's me running too. for president. Me too. I love the guy, okay? So, but I don't think he's going to get anywhere with his no, campaign. No, no, either, no, though. no, right, right. And you right. know, the, the other thing about politics is like it is such politics or watching the news, take your pick, paying attention to that stuff. It can be just such a distraction from your own issues and problems. Oh, I think that's the, well, for the you, people who run and for the people who watch yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, if I think back to the times in my life where I've paid the most attention to the news and to political races, I was miserable personally right and it was a great distraction from that yeah well and that's what it is yeah i think that's actually the very core of why people get involved in politics at all uh that are of a more anarchist or libertarian bent is because it keeps them from doing the real work of freedom which is working on yourself absolutely i'm a that that's at the bottom of all this no doubt about it you gotta let go of that stuff if you are going to do that inner work and that that's the most important thing like you said brian and, and getting free, in my opinion. And I think I, I have a lot to back that up. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But you so, can't be distracted with the politics, playing politics, because you're going to end up miserable. Right. And it's sad when you see when you see people you like and you know um, getting wrapped up in that kind of thing. Sure. 
I don't know. I mean, well, sometimes they say, well, it doesn't bother me. I'm fine with it. But yeah, uh, I well, wonder I wonder about that. No, right. And some of them, I think, are doing this for a money making grab because it's easy, even not people, people that aren't even running for politics, but people that were never interested in politics before and were pushing a liberty message. I think that they start to get involved in politics because it gives them uh, v- YouTube views and it gives them it suddenly the, the, the political people start giving them money. Okay, they start donating to them for these causes and for them reporting upon this political stuff when, you know, a year before or whatever amount of time they wouldn't bother with it at all. But the point I want to get to, I want to get to the arguments that these people make for why they're doing this. Okay, and the first one I want to discuss is the educational platform. This seems to be the one that most people have uh, or that most people want to tout out is that, well, Ron Paul, you know, pushed he he educated so many people and brought so many people to liberty uh, and all that stuff. You know, my initial argument with that is that these people would have gotten there eventually anyway. He merely like like made the information. He kind of put it onto a wall, but that doesn't mean people weren't already aware. You know, it, it clicks with you. It's not like suddenly you just learn something. It just clicks and it says, oh, that's the name for what I've been feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's It was already there. OK. Uh, and so. And, you know, the other thing about Ron Paul is like people always make that argument of, yeah, well, um, how many anarchists did how many people heard about liberty through Ron Paul and then became anarchists later? Well, how many anarchists or people who were kind of there were pulled into the political system by Ron Paul yeah, and exactly. stayed status for longer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> I wonder if it equals out. Right. Right. So and, you know, the the first thing I'd say is depending on how far if it's like a Ron Paul situation where the person is making millions of dollars, OK, to do this campaign, which they know they're not going to win. My initial statement of that is, is there cities even in the U.S., even in the colonies that you could buy for a quarter of the price of what it costs to to get in these elections half the time. Okay, you could buy an entire city and then run it all your own way. Even if you still wanted to be that politician, you could be the fucking mayor, you know, rock and roll. Okay, but let's say it's one of these cheapo jobs, you know, where you're just doing it uh, because it's free advertising because no one else is there and you don't there's no incumbents or something like that. And you just get to talk about it or whatever. For me, on the educational platform, what part of this isn't the same thing as your parents or your pastor or, you know, your rabbi or your teacher or whatever saying to you effectively, do as I say, not as I do? Yeah. You know, and what part isn't it that? Yeah, there really has to be that integrity there for people to trust you and to want to come on board with the ideas you promote. And it's true. There is a contradiction in the idea of becoming a politician to say, oh, yeah, politics is bad. Really? I mean, people can see right through that, even if they're not super aware of it consciously. They know there's a contradiction there. Yeah. Now, the second now, the next thing that they like to bring up is that, well, I'm running as a representative or a senator or an MP or whatever out of self-defense to defend myself, to put an end to like these laws. And it's like so then you're breaking your integrity of you're not being truthful. Because you're lying, because your job as a representative or a senator is to represent the people's needs. And guess what, folks? If the people want single payer health care. What are you going to fu- do? Who yeah. the fuck are you to go to get voted in and then say and, and disrespect the people? That's the whole thing you're arguing about against with politics is that the politicians don't care about you. You're being that non-caring politician. It doesn't matter if you think you know better than they do. And you probably do know better than your constituents. OK, <laughs> but the point is, is that you lied to them. 
when you said you were going in there to represent the people, you are not representing their interests. It doesn't matter if their interests are stupid. You're lying. Okay. <laughs> what about the whole idea of um, r- running for office on a platform of abolishing it if you get elected? You know, I think that's oh. that's another thing I hear a lot. Okay, folks. You only need look at the Bitcoin Foundation to figure that one out yeah. because Cody Wilson did that. Yeah. He, he and if <laughs> I know the Bitcoin Foundation's not even a, a government, it's it smacks of government, it reeks right. of government, but it's not technically a government. And if it if it is, if we're going to think of it as a government, it's one of the smallest, lo- most local, you know, community focused ones around. And Cody Wilson wasn't even able to a prominent person, yeah. a prominent libertarian activist was not able to uh, run and get elected in the Bitcoin Foundation and abolish it. Right. No, you have to proverbially take off every head of the Hydra. OK, proverbially. And I'm talking about an actual Hydra, not humans. I, I'm not a violent person. OK, um, but, you know, that's and it has to be one swoop. You know, you, you can't. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this is that whole idea of incremental change um, that just doesn't work at all. Uh, so now you're working within a system. Oh, I mean, yeah, this is why I quit medicine. If, right. You know, I thought. I was going to be like Ron Paul, like the female Ron Paul. Okay. I thought I was going to be the good doctor who could change the system from the inside. (laughs) That seemed to be a theme in Ron Paul's life. You know, he got into politics and medicine. And what I realized was that it's, you can't, you can't change the system. If you don't like McDonald's, you shouldn't go work for McDonald's and try to change it from the inside. Like that meme says that you brilliantly (laughs) shared this week, which I shared too. Um, you can't change these big grinding systems. They're going to steamroll right over you. So right. I, I and I don't think that Jeff or Daryl have any illusion of like one getting elected, but B or <laughs> two actually changing the system if they were to get elected. But then what? What's what's the point? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> is it, it the most effective way to spread the message of liberty? I I don't think so. No, I mean, they, it's both of these say, guys are media do. people. They have YouTube. They have popular YouTube and SoundCloud shows, you know, like they're out there and they're probably reaching more people and more of the type of people that they want to reach through uh, creating media rather than running for office. Sure. So, you know, the other point that I want to get to is voting itself. I think it's easy enough to dismantle the notion of running for office as being disingenuous, uh, a lack of having a lack of integrity and, uh, you know, I mean, again, it's do as I say, not as I do. I mean, that that's that's really what it is. If you're up there as an anarchist, as someone that doesn't think there's be government to go up there and run for government is I mean, that's just insane, you know, and then like, well, anyway, the, the next part is voting itself, because that's what a lot of people will say, because they'll say it's the self. If it's, if I can't run as a politician, not a self-defense, I'm going to do the self-defense oh, voting vote. and self-defense. Yeah. Right. How's I, that working out for you? Wh- Has your vo- vote ever changed anything? <laughs> right. Yeah. And even if it, it does, even if it did, even if it did, the, the point is, is that the system in and of itself, the political system in and of itself is a coercive system. It's based around coercion. Okay, there is no way that taking part in any way within that system isn't also coercion. And so, again, your principles, your integrity just got thrown out the door. 
Yeah, you really okay. you really get started to sorry you really start to get stuck to the status fly paper yeah. when you get involved with these systems. And yeah. I get the arguments that it's hard to live as a pure anarchist completely outside the system, but voting is not mandatory. No, okay? it that's is an the optional between thing. It taxes, you right. do, you don't have to vote, and so when you choose right. to vote, you are casting a ballot, and at best, it's a symbolic gesture. It's an a, a expression of something, whereas it's really not going to change well, anything. Your vote is not going to matter. So. You you are choosing to participate in a system that you probably disagree with. Right. And if your voting works, it's it's, you know, proverbially a nuclear bomb because it doesn't just affect you. If your voting work, it affects everybody. You just exercised power over other people that you don't even know who their faces. You don't even know their faces. Yeah. OK, it's it. There's no it's coercion. Voting is coercion. There, there's no other way to put it. You know, and and coercion is wrong. That's the whole point is, you know, being against coercive force if you're an anarchist or a libertarian or whatever. Okay, so there's no way to paint any good light or put any good light on the political system. And it's insulting to me to think that there's anarchists out there that want to represent me. You missed the point. So, you know, I mean, that that's that's my I'm overall. not comfortable with it. Yeah. No, no, that, that's that's my overall, you know, thoughts. What about that. joke candidates like Vermin Supreme? I think they've been around for a while and everybody knows it's a joke, but they keep on. Yeah, it doesn't voting. do anything. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, if you want to you want to troll thing, there's other ways to troll. Are you sick of government lackeys who say you didn't build that? Are you tired of elitists like Barack Obama and Al Gore taking credit for the Web while trying to take over the Web? Are you disgusted by experts whose concept of the internet is that it's a series of tubes? Take back the free market of computing by encouraging software developers to adopt the BIPCOT no-gov license. The BIPCOT no-gov license allows any use or modification except by governments. Go to BIPCOT.org. That's Bravo, India, Papa, Charlie, Oscar, Tango, dot org. Jane, Natalia, come on! They're right behind us! They can't just jump off this building. No, but with a little help I called on. Hello, Agent Sovereign. The jetpacks you requested? Right on time, Elizabeth. I am not flying with one of those. I'll hold you, Jane. Relax. Tech is just a tool. It is time for Tool of the Week. And unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) it's not (laughs) jetpacks. But uh, just real quick, you know, this is something that got brought to my attention uh, by really uh, just the amazing and lovely Paige Peterson. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Stephanie gets all a flutter. (laughs) Uh, Paige is wonderful. So this is I knew about this and I, you know, I'm going to try and get the developer. She's amazing. And yes, it's a woman that developed this operating system. Um, Wow. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, I want to try and get her on the show. But I want I didn't know that this was still in development. I knew about it uh, a few years ago. It was back in like 2012 uh, that this came out. It's called Cubes OS, Q-U-B-E-S OS. And this is a this is a dream. So now some of these OSs I've seen and I've mentioned them on Sovereign Tech before, uh, they kind of come and go like there's Byzantine Linux, which was actually earlier we were talking about uh, having an operating system that could work as a Wi-Fi hotspot of sorts uh, that 
that was what Byzantine Linux could do way back when, but I think that stopped development. And so I thought Cubes OS stopped Cubes OS stopped development too, but apparently no, it just had release two come out in September of 2014. So this is what this operating system is. And I know some people do this with Gentoo Linux already to some degree and all that, but this is right at the core of it. It is an OS that every, pretty much every app, every piece of software that you use, it's like a, it's like, you know, 20, 30, a hundred, however many you set up virtual machines running on top of an OS and it sandboxes everything so that one operating or, you know, one, one piece of software can't affect the other. It's a beautiful implementation. I love the idea way back when I'm glad it's still out there. I still need to check it out. And like I said, I definitely want to have, um, the, the creator on this show, uh, but it's usable as I understand it. I've talked to some people and they said that they, they use it all the way. Uh, and I love, again, I love the idea. Sure. There's a lack of efficiency where like with Android, where you can't share, uh, maybe pictures across apps or something. Right. Uh, but in this case, you get that security that is so important. This is the ultimate DAPS OS decentralized, anonymous, private and secure. Uh, awesome stuff. So check out cubes OS. There's a link in the show notes. And uh, I'll be right back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Right on. Hey, this is Michael Dean from the Freedom Fiends Radio Show. I've been working with computer programmer Derek Slopey to create Fiend Phone. I'm using Fiend Phone right now to talk with and record one of my co-hosts in real time. Take it, Davi. Hey, this is Davi Barker, and I'm a thousand miles away from Michael, but we sound like we're in the same room. We sure do, Davi. So, Davi, please tell the nice people more about Fiend Phone. FiendPhone is free, open-source software that opens up a global world of possibilities for collaborative, high-quality remote voice media production, and I'm digging it. People can try the Windows beta version of FiendPhone right now at FiendPhone.com, but we're also raising money to vastly improve FiendPhone and vastly improve independent talk media worldwide. So go to FiendPhone.com to help out. Who will build the audio roads? We will, with your help. That's FiendPhone.com. F-E-E-N-P-H-O-N-E dot com. Foxtrot, Echo, Echo, November, phone dot com. Fiend phone. I never knew remote audio could be this good. This is James Smith, formerly of WASP News, now an anarchist. And I want to introduce you to Brian Sovereign, former agent of... I have little time. You need to know what's going on. The government is lying to you. Corporations are lying to you. Even is lying to you. They're trying to centralize everything. Trust yourselves. Your computer is your only country. Coexist and learn all that you can. Hack the planet! Man, if that ain't the most exciting intro I heard. That's great. Hack the planet! Hack the planet! Woo! Anyway. Oh, I love it. Anyway. Um, so the idea is that you hacked into the TV system with Jane's help and yes. broadcast a message. Yeah, yeah. Out hacked the Times entire Square. world centralized network. Everybody, every eye on planet Earth saw that. So, <laughs> and maybe heard it in another language. I don't know. Uh, anyway, they... <laughs> Let's let's get into HackSec this week, which is, of course, where we talk about hackers and security. And uh, this week, we actually got a great 
from one of our favorite, yours and mine favorite uh, uh, news sources, Stephanie, which is a uh, coin telegraph. Um, and the U S government develops a matrix like world simulating the virtual you. Uh, this is something. <laughs> so why is coin telegraph my favorite? Yeah. Well, I mean, we get a lot of news from there. We're, we're yeah, constantly I mean, I, I certainly like Coin Telegraph. I just wasn't thinking it as my fa- well. I wasn't what, thinking I, I had any favorite. <laughs> yeah, I said one of ours. So. Got it. Okay. Anyway, um, let's read the story here. Uh, it is not surprising that data in the information age can be extremely valuable, even a source of power. Now, picture a parallel virtual world that collects information on our virtual identities in real time tracks our behavior and is smart enough to interpret this data to simulate a virtual you on its own. This is exactly the concept of sentient world simulation, SWS, that was proposed in a paper by a few researchers in 2006, which has since largely flown under the radar. Now, everybody always asks, well, hey, what could they do with all that data? They can't even look at it, look at it all. You know, all the data they collect on you or me based upon Google use or whatever app gets used or whatever traveling, you know, it gets done and all these things. Uh, you know, what could get done with that? Well, here's what could get done with it. The SWS. And all it takes is an algorithm. Just plug in and make you. I mean, it's literally almost a, a matrix like in the movies, the mm-hmm. matrix. Yeah. So, and if they want to zero in on you. Or if somebody wants to zero in on a particular behavior right. and predicting it, that yeah, guess what you're going to do. Too whatever. hard, yeah. Sure, maybe it won't be. You know, the lucky maybe the lucky thing is is that people that are you know so uh, knowledge hungry, maybe they're tough to peg you know to pin down as to what they would actually do because they're just so you know, yeah, they're they're you know they know so much or whatever, but and have experienced so much. But um, all right, SWS. Let's read about this. Is one of the ongoing projects by secret agencies and organizations such as the NSA. In fact, these organizations have a long history of always seeking new technologies to process a continuous stream of information about the population. However, SWS differs from other information aggregators such as Google in that this technology actually simulates us while taking our personalities into account in a parallel virtual world sws is actually a continually continuously running continually updated mirror model of the real world in parallel on a computer designed to predict and evaluate future events act and courses of action put simply sws is a virtual mirror of the real society where individuals leaders organizations and institutions are simulated according to real data the geography of a, of a society is modeled at various levels including city province country region and world in terms of political, military, economic, social information and infrastructure nodes. I just want to read a little bit more. SWS uses synthetic environment for analysis simulation, which is designed to be agnostic to the type of simulations and choice of models in order to allow experimentation in the context of multiple and potentially conflicting theories and predictions in a complex scenario a single theory from sws doesn't give comprehensive information about the case it requires a different analysis from different perspectives perspectives of the same phenomena by combining all the all the theories it's developed in a way where each component and theory is built on the previous serving as stepping stones in the development of sws now i want i'll stop right there and people can read more okay the fact that this kind of tech i mean this this sort of technology could be seen as interesting would would you agree with that 
Um, yeah, I, I think if people, if Google's making robots that sound like your dead grandma and Facebook's making bots that can post as you and it kind of sounds like something you would say, then yeah, this is a logical next step. Yeah, well, and, and you dovetailed, you actually brought together something that I wanted to, which is very interesting, that we're already talking about building robots that replace people. You already have an entire virtual simulation of what that person would do. And yeah, why need, why have people at all? <laughs> right. With some degree of prescience as to how exactly they would do these things. I mean, you put these technologies together, you end up with some very interesting possibilities, but also some very scary possibilities. And now you don't want to get into techno panic. But the fact is, is that governments are running this right now. You know, they are trying to guess way ahead of the game what large amounts the population would do with things. Uh, I mean, this this creates a lot of nightmare scenarios. Um, do you think that this is, Stephanie, I'll ask you, do you think this kind of development is unethical? Oh. Yes, let's say if it wasn't government, hmm. if it wasn't government or corporate control. Um, unethical. Well, it's not something I like, but I don't think it's necessarily unethical. Well, how? what if somebody made a virtual you? As in Stephanie Murphy, I mean, and they did what they, you know, they, they could, they could just right. assemble all the public data that's available. And I suppose if I was really concerned about that, I wouldn't do any podcasts, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause there's, there's voice prints of me, you know, there's everything right. is my stuff is out there. I don't post half. I don't really post anything very personal so, on Facebook, right. but you know, I, I'm sure if someone really wanted to do the research. They could look at my credit cards and everything and put it all together and see what I'm going to buy and things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't like it. It feels like doxing. It feels like an attack. It feels invasive, mm -hmm. but I can't really find anything like morally wrong with it they're just kind of putting together information yeah i mean how is it different other than how the the like say if they did if they collected the data in an, an unethical way that'd be different okay yes but, that's but absolutely it's no true that kind of violates my need for privacy and if they used it to harm me like if they used right. it to know where i was so that they could attack me uh that would be a problem but the problem is the attack not yeah. really the information that helped you get to the attack yeah because right? otherwise it's a fantasy right I mean, like, how is it different from a yeah. person having a fantasy about yeah, you in their it? own mind yeah, and jerking dream. off to it? I mean, right. Oh, there are people who do that. That, that they do. <laughs> There's probably people who do that about you, too, Brian. I mean, I, that may, I don't want to confirm or deny that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, now, I mean, I think it's obvious that, the, you know, what terrors could be wrought from people like Google or, or the government using this technology. But the technology itself is not crazy. I mean, like this is the future of virtual reality that's going to be coming, uh, but it highlights that it's really possible. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, like, if, so it's basically just hacking. I know you hate that word in, in this context, but it's basically, you know, reverse engineering someone's behavioral patterns. Right. Right. In terms of where they go, what they buy, what they think, what they do, you know, like, could that be flipped around and used on, I don't know, government people or your enemies? So. Yeah, perhaps it could. I think so. I, I think th this could be. But, you know, that's the thing is, is that that shows that the danger of having of government. I mean, government is the danger itself. It shouldn't exist. But of it being closed off mm -hmm. is you couldn't do this in reverse. You know, yeah, absolutely. when when this technology should be available abroad and in some form or other, I think will be uh, eventually where, you know, I mean, this is like the start of a holodeck. Yeah. Right. 
Um, yeah, I mean, like, it, this is what they say about sociopaths, right? They're very good at um, seeing people's patterns of behavior and thought process and not really empathizing with them, but using the tools of empathy to kind of get inside someone's head right. and, like, uh, predict what they're going to do and yeah, we, control we, them, you Right, know? which is a shame because this could be used for incredibly empathetic uh, uh, means to where you could do role plays and work things out and the computer could actually simulate how somebody would react. Yeah. And I think that that Who's would be fascinating. Who's talking about building AI therapists, though? I mean, that's well, what we need. Well, I'd, I'd love to see that. <laughs> Maybe not run by Google. <laughs> yeah, but, uh... yeah. Conversation for another another time, I think. so. But it's interesting because, you know what? You know what I think a lot of people would go with this is a lot of people think that's actually what reality is. It's just a giant it's SWS. A sim- simulation. It's all just a simulation. None of this is real. Well... That's a cop out because the way they live their lives, it's they live as though they do have free will and that they're in control right. of their own actions, at least. Yeah. You know, and that the world is real and not a freaking computer simulation. I mean, I, I hate it when I feel annoyed when people get into that stuff because it's like, oh, really? Who cares? Is it until it's proven that there until I see a glitch in the Matrix, I'm right. going to live as though this is the real world. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what do you want to let, let's say it was even true? What do you want to do? Go turn it off? Like, yeah. Like what, 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 what can you do? What, what's mean, the end game of, of what you're what you're planning on? Um, yeah. When, when things get into that and they're like, oh, well, we can do it. Maybe it just, you know, it, it's just turtles all the way down. And when you start thinking that way, I mean, you get nowhere. Like you literally yeah, get well, nowhere the with lengths your... that people will go to avoid their personal problems and what's bothering them. You know, it's right. like they get into these mental pretzels right. of like, oh, I... is the earth really flat? And like, uh, yes. maybe we're in a matrix. And yeah. Maybe nothing's real. Maybe gravity doesn't exist. Oh, I mean, like the level like what are you distracting yourself but from i don't is, mean that to sound mean i'm trying no, to i'm trying to empathize like you're what happened it. to that person yeah. that they're so focused on distracting themselves from what's going on for them in right. the present moment in the here and now in reality you're you're hitting on it you're hitting on all of it is that so many of these theories that come out okay yeah fine the technology exists to do it okay that doesn't mean that it's so all right uh but this is what I think where a lot of these these wild theories come from is just people will not take personal responsibility. They will not, you know, dare to look inside yeah. because they're afraid of how strange perhaps what's in there or yeah. how abnormal. But that's the only way you're going to get any real answers in life. Yeah. If it's a simulation, then maybe I don't really feel this pain that I feel or yeah, I'm not responsible get to toss for it this. Off. But you but you are. Yeah. And Looking at that is what will get you freedom. A is A. Babylon 5 ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace. Danger didn't die. It just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch. We need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated. What is wrong with you people? We have to set him against himself. It's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Agent Sovereign, Skylab C is in a polar orbit of the Earth. Computer, it's not Agent anymore. We don't work for them. Natalia, Elizabeth, Jane, and I, and anyone else that wants to join us, we're rogue now. We have to put an end to domination. Sovereign, come join us. Yeah, join us. Don't be a wanker. <laughs> well, there's 
no reason not to have fun in the process. I'm coming, ladies! The climax. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> Don't be a wanker. Don't be a wanker. <laughs> you know, really. <laughs> That's great, Brian. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. A great of course, the, the, the end, for those that don't know, the ending is them all up on a space station. It's Skylab C. Which... It's a little hard to understand that in that computer voice. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. it works. It works. So or maybe, maybe it was just the moans that were kind yeah, of Yeah, maybe the, uh, maybe you were, too, you were too busy listening to the moans. That's mm-hmm. what it was. You can understand it pretty well. But Even though it's my own voice, I mean, <laughs> I can kind of hear that anytime I want. Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, no. It's different when it's characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, um, let's get into the climax. Of course, the climax is yeah. where we can talk about uh, whatever we want to talk about. Uh, it could be a movie, TV show, book, comic book, product. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be science and tech related or whatever. It could be dinosaurs. could be dinosaurs, <laughs> which actually this week it is. So uh, the new Jurassic Park, uh, Jurassic World, right, is coming out. In the next month or so, and was it July or the June, end of June? June, end of June, June twelfth. Okay. I'm or June excited. June twelfth. Oh, fantastic! This is like the first time I've actually paid attention to a movie release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a big movie fan, but I'm interested in seeing this one. Yeah. Well, you love Jurassic Park, of course, which came out in '94, based off the Michael Crichton oh, works. It was a fantastic movie. Classic. Yeah, I loved. I think I saw it maybe in theaters when I was like ten years old. Yeah, me too. Well, and, I mean, I was a little intense. And I definitely watched it. I I think we had like a VHS, like my family had yeah. a VHS of it. And I watched it a bunch of times after that. Yeah, absolutely. And so this past week, we actually watched, because I don't think you'd seen them. Uh, we watched The Lost World, which is the sequel. Mm-hmm. And then we watched the other sequel, which is Jurassic Park 3. Mm-hmm. So you love Jurassic Park. I love the first Jurassic Park. It's fantastic. Oh, um, I love, yeah. I. It's just dinosaurs. Like... Ever since I've been as, ever since I can remember, really, maybe age four, this is when the fascination started. I loved dinosaurs, yeah. and I wanted to be a paleontologist. Same you know, like a lot of kids go through that, but I think it's I think it's usually boys. Like I always kind of joke that like me playing with so many dinosaurs when I was mm-hmm. a little kid is why I'm so queer uh, <laughs> as an adult. But maybe it's a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. You know, some people get into some very deep areas with why they think there's a child fasc- childhood fascination with dinosaurs, like the notion that it's because it's something greater than, like, more powerful than humans. Yeah, and so to save you from your parents right, or something. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some people get into that. Maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. Um, but I love the things. I think that they're amazing, yeah. uh, you know, to, to look at and to consider you know, just how different life on Earth was so long ago is really a real mindfuck. And I remember mm. seeing the first Jurassic Park and, you know, people don't people miss this. And I think this is a kind of a running theme that we noticed watching these movies is that, I mean, Jurassic Park is good to this day. But the other two, well, the second one was, you enjoyed that. I thought the second yeah. one was almost as good as the first one. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, maybe like 80% or sure. 70% as good as the first one. Sure. The third one. Not so much, but it was still entertaining. <laughs> yeah, see, all right. So, so right. So that's the thing. The second one for me, I hadn't seen that since it was in theaters, which that was like 97 or 98. Uh, and then the third one came out in 2001. Um, and the second one, I don't remember liking it, but I watched it this time and I was like, yeah, you know, that was actually pretty good. I, I rather enjoyed that. I think a lot of like the, the, the dinosaur capture vehicles and all that shit, that was pure marketing. 
Like that was all to make toys. Uh, but, yeah. but regardless, uh, the third one I always enjoyed, and I think I've talked about it on Sovereign Tech. I always enjoyed the third one because it just got to the dinosaurs. It was just like, you know, screw story. Just, we know so, what people are here for. Yeah. It's like a porn, you know, just yep. get to the sex. Let's get just the get the dialogue bad. about ordering a pizza. Really. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Get to the dinosaurs. Yeah. Let's get to like these, in, these extremely intelligent velociraptors and all that, which eventually became Jews and, or whoops. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, that's actually dinosaurs is where they, you know, the whole lizard thing, like the Trunodon, they think became a bipedal creature. Uh, and, uh-huh. you know, lizard creature, and that's where all that stuff okay. uh, comes from. Not true, but <laughs> but I mean, I'm saying people think that. So anyway, um, this the thing that with the first one that really blew my mind. What I really the first the first Jurassic Park. I love the first 40 minutes because I love the dinosaurs, and people forget that. Look, you know, there was a time where CGI didn't look that good, yeah, and where effects didn't look that good, and you couldn't get a real looking dinosaur for the life of you. It just wasn't possible. <laughs> Okay. And so for Jurassic Park in 94 to do that was earth shattering, literally. Yeah. It changed everything. And yes, there was CGI before, I know, but I'm just saying that changed everything there. And so I think in 97 and even in 2001, seeing dinosaurs, seeing CGI that looked that good was still a novelty. It was still a rare thing. And so it's particularly Jurassic Park 3 for me. It held up. It was a great movie because you didn't get to see dinosaurs like that. Now you can see them. You can watch Terra Nova and you're going to see great looking dinosaurs. Uh, I mean, it really doesn't matter. Uh, now it's a dime a dozen to make great looking dinosaurs. So I think that's part of what made these movies so great was that. And that would not translate well today. And I'm curious how Jurassic World's going to do. But I mean, do you have other thoughts on the on these movies that you want to share? Yeah, I have a lot of other thoughts on them, yeah, actually. I mean, I think one of the appeals of dinosaurs, even to um, adults, is just like, they're just, they represent this animalistic, primal um, thing that is so scary. And I think that humans are scared of about themselves or other humans. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there's the phrase, uh, reptile brain. Dan Savage says it a lot. Right. Um, like, you... In your reptile brain, when you see your wife fucking another guy, you get really jealous and then you get a big boner. Like he'll say it in that kind of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to imply that it's it's the limbic system. It's the emotional center of the brain that mm-hmm. governs fear and food and fucking. It's in med school. They used to call it like the four F's or the five X yeah. F's. Uh, fight, flight, food, fucking yeah, it might be another one, but I can't remember. <laughs> That's the climax. Anyway, uh, <laughs> like we see that we see dinosaurs, you know, expressing that just being completely governed by their most basic urges mm-hmm. from that reptile brain. And we know we have that. We have the neocortex on top of it, but we've got that, too. Yeah. And. You know, like, what if we just like went, what if we were ruled by that? And we started like doing all this violence and they're just so, they're just such a classic representation of an animal. They have no morality. They they don't care. They're just trying to eat. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the interesting thing that like the Jurassic Park movies is trying to bring up, like even with the T-Rex and the second one saying that the theory was, is actually they do care. They care very much about their child, you know, and they care uh, about their children. But that's just like a reproductive kind of instinct, you know, like Mm -hmm. most of the time they're characterized as just like they'll fight with one another. You know, if they're they're attacking a human, that the human somehow gets away. There's another dinosaur. They'll get distracted and fight with the other dinosaur. Like they're just simple machines. You know, there's right. Right. I think (laughs) with the cultural narrative that humans are, are fed, I think that that's that 
that's very true that a lot of that, cause I, you know, one could argue are humans more of a brachiosaur as far as their lizard brain goes than they are tyrannosaur. You yeah. Know, to where they, maybe I think more that's peaceful. what, I think that's what a lot of humans do when they see the movie. Cause mm-hmm. there's different, there's different types of dinosaurs being portrayed. And of course they can't talk. Right. So even well, though the, in the third the movie, can. the velociraptors <laughs> are being portrayed as being able to communicate with each other right. through vocalizations. Right. And that's like a big point of the movie, but mostly the dinosaurs can't talk. They certainly can't speak English. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't gotten to that point in the Rothschild conspiracy yet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I saw one of them was like they, they were doing fractional reserve banking, the velociraptors, <laughs> right in the compound. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, in between sitting on their eggs. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? So they can't talk, so they're characterized by their actions. And their actions are, with the carnivorous ones, are vicious, primal, Fight with anything, right. anything, right. other dinosaurs, maybe even other dinosaurs of your own species, attack each other, fight with each other, mm-hmm. try to establish dominance. But then there's these other ones like the Stegosaurus and, you know, the uh, Lambdasaurus, the one that like is like basically shown as like grazing in a field, Brontosaurus. Yeah. And those are like the nice dinosaurs. Like they yeah. just eat plants. And it's know? interesting, like kind of dumb and they're, you know. Well, they might not. Well. Yeah, the, the, the stegosaurus had like a peanut size or a walnut size brain, right? They don't have that killer <laughs> instinct, but they do have the instinct to like run away and like preserve their life. Well, and they and have so, so many like built in defenses that they don't yeah. even have to really worry. And I, I love that. I think that's an interesting, you know, biomimicry is a thing. And I think technology should, should mimic that mm. to where it's so defensive that it just doesn't care. You and know. yeah, and the way they just kind of carelessly flick their tail and it can do so yeah. much destruction, they're completely unaware of the destruction <laughs> they can do. And they they also like, like humans they dance. Don't, they don't care about social norms. They, yeah. There's a there's a great scene in the second Jurassic Park where basically through a series of events, <laughs> a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a baby gets brought to san diego or is it san diego yeah yeah san diego. it gets brought to san diego and you see it like it's being brought from costa rica so it's brought on this ship and the ship like it eats everyone on the ship so the ship just crashes on shore right and it's out at this dock so there's like a custom station and you see <laughs> a sign that says welcome to the united states of america customs and border protection no plants fruits or animals beyond this point. And it just walks and you through. See, and, you, and the dinosaur just crashes through <laughs> that sign. And then inside, then you see a contrast shot of all these like families trying to like orderly go through the immigration yeah. process, get, like Hispanic people like yeah. being inter- interviewed by American border protection people. Yeah, I love it. Nature <laughs> is anarchy. That's <laughs> Yeah, it's just a great, that was just yeah. a great scene. Yeah, I really love, did, did you have a little bit more? Uh, no, it's just like, it's, it's interesting. Cause like they're, they're portrayed that way. They don't care. They yeah. they don't care about social norms. They don't care about conditioning. Yeah. And that's the way the primal lizard brain works. You know, right. it just cares about those basic needs. Yeah. <laughs> Self-preservation, food, that kind of thing. And well, people see that and they really can relate to it in a way. They're like, yeah, I wish I could not care about the yeah, border they, protection. They just want to get past these <laughs> fictional things that exist around them. You know, that being government. And yeah. Talk about, I mean, dinosaurs are more real than that fiction. Maybe I'm going too deep on no, that, well, but that's kind of what I was thinking. You know, what, what I really enjoy with these kind of films, and there's actually, there's a lot of movies that do this, not just dinosaurs, and there's books like The Green Brain by Frank Herbert and a bunch of the stuff, where it's I love it because it's nature saying, you know, it's it's nature just going after arrogance and just saying, you know what, you think you're so much, but you are so small. 
You know, yeah, you're special, absolutely. but you are so small. You think you and can bring dinosaurs back to life and control them? Yeah. Think again. I love <laughs> that gonna overrun message. this island. Right. I there's love- a lot. Of, yeah. There's a lot of scenes of like dinosaurs just destroying like human um, built yeah, houses. Even, even like the best like cars. Right. Planes. Right. Exactly. Or even on the island, even the best cages, they just wreck them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's so I love that message because it's so humbling to say, consider what you are doing and what you are building. Yeah. Because someone tries to commercialize the dinosaurs. Someone tries to pitch to investors and he gets the whole investor conference like trampled by dinosaurs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I you mean, you can control them. Yeah. It, it's it's such it, it's such an interesting message to see. So I always enjoy it when nature Nature gets maybe I don't want to say a little payback like somehow man is like in, is is inherently destroying it or something like that. I mean there certainly many are, um, but I like to see nature getting a little payback. I, I really do. I like to see, I like seeing a little humbling of the fact that there is an there's an objective reality, there's an objective existence, and it will take you out if you're not paying attention. Uh, and you know yeah. I think that's that's a really important I'm thing to Rand consider. I would love this movie. Oh yeah, that's the same reason I love Godzilla movies. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, maybe she wouldn't love it because it wouldn't be like the triumph of intellect over base nature. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually the other way around. She'd probably be like, somebody better get a patent on that brontosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up to the to the office. Get in, Jen, in here. Anyway, yeah, uh, who knows? But enjoyable films, any way you look at them. Uh, I think all three of them are really great. I'm, I know a lot of people are knocking the fourth one. I'm excited for it. Why are they? Uh, what are they saying about it? I don't it? know. They, People just like to bitch. Well, they're impossible gives, to please. Yeah, it's because that that is you know complaining is the language of the internet. It it should be educating, <laughs> but complaining is the language of the internet, yeah. not education, which is what it should be. Yeah, but for uh, sure. and so that's it. So people just like to complain, you know. But I I love these movies. I'm glad we got to watch them and enjoy them. Uh, I thought it was it was absolutely a, you know just a fantastic time uh, and to revisit them and for them to really to more or less hold up. Still, uh, I, I know it's it's. It, I recognize the novelty of the effects now, but but you liked them too, yeah. I loved them. Yeah, I can't wait to see Jurassic World. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, Stephanie, thank you so much. <laughs> That's it. Thank you so much for being on. Grab the book of Satoshi, people, the audio book if you want. Thank uh, you. The link is in the show notes. And of course, grab a copy of Hypercronius or feel free, go to zog.ninja, sovereigntech.ninja, donate to the show if you like what we're doing here. Carpe Lucem, everybody. Stephanie, I'll let you say the next. <laughs> See you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.